Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Boy, that intro uh, actually makes us sound pretty smart, doesn't it, John? We have been replaced. We have been replaced. Part of us have been replaced. That's true. Just a small part. Just a small part. I'm okay with it. That's a great intro, though. It makes us sound very professional. I (laughs) I like like it. it. I like it. Well, we do have a great show lineup for the day, John. You know, we're going to start off here talking about giving trends and maximizing your tax benefits. Um, You know, nothing more important than getting your tax deductions. Of course, and uh, I mean, giving is a, is just a yeah. great thing you want to maximize. So we're going to talk about how to do both of those things. Great way to start off, and we're going to follow that up with an article talking about customer service and how you deal with them on the phones. And I'll be honest with you, this was a very good article for me. Um, I sometimes get frustrated over the phone when you dial into those 800 numbers and uh, you put it on hold and you have someone who maybe is not um, qualified to answer your question or help you. Great article of things not to do when you call customer service. So stick around. Second half is going to be lively. Yeah, I think that's a great topic. I have some nice, interesting things to interject there as well. So uh, I bet you we all do. This, we, uh, is, uh, this, this is, is near and dear to everybody's heart, yeah. isn't it? Dealing yep. with customer service. So I love that one. Yeah, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 20 years experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm also a Dave Ramsey Smart Smart Vester Pro have an MBA in finance, and um, I just had my 25-year work anniversary. Just I started back in 1992, so um, okay. worked corporations for about 15 years, and uh, been here at Richard Young Associates for for 10 years now. So, man, time flies when you're having fun. So, um, it's good to be a part of Richard Young Associates and Money MD. Yeah, wow, you're dating yourself, John. I, mean, I am. I just yeah, getting a little yeah, old there. I gave I gave you. some clues. <laughs> I won't date myself because I even got a few years on you, as you know. Um, yeah, we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every week, every Friday um, on our website. Uh, you can get us right off of Invest RYA. Yeah, you can go to investroya.com or also moneymd.net. Um, you know, they're they're both linked together. We have the podcast. Uh, separated it on the side so you can listen to a show from your computer. You can also go back and look at the history, and we have it categorized by different topics. So we try to cover a wide range. We talk about taxes, you know, sometimes we, you know, customer service today, but there's stuff on there about insurance, long-term care um, products, reverse mortgages, you name it, and the money doctors have talked about it. You know, this is our sixth year. That's right. We've, We've been, been doing this doing a long, this a long time. time. So there's a lot of topics out there. There <laughs> so are a check lot it out. of topics out there. Yeah, you would think we'd be getting pretty good at it by now. I well, think we are. I, I think, think we, we get some good feedback. We, we do. do. We have a lot of clients that listen to us and people out in the community that um, that give us good feedback on it. So yeah, Speaking of which, you can email us. We would love to have your feedback. So email us your questions. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, um, we do have a great show today. Well, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. This comes from the city of Chicago, and they have a very large unfunded pension liability. Um, it's estimated to be $27 billion, with wow. a B, dollars. It's equal to 11 years worth of the city's current annual tax revenue. So, translation, they're going to have a reduction in benefits more than likely. And yeah, it would it, take them 11 years just <laughs> to fund that liability. And the liability probably lasts 30 years. So, And that's assuming they took that tax revenue and put 100% on it towards the pension. 
uh, you know, they've got other expenses and so forth. So, you know, we see this in South Carolina. I mean, there's been some talk um, about changing the benefits for the teachers right. in South right. Carolina, right. also um, the police force. And so if you have a pension, it, it quote is guaranteed, but it's not. If it's an un, if it's in an unfunded liability status, there could be some changes to it. Yeah, they could they could cut the pensions, particularly if the city gets in trouble. You know, like Detroit went back and had to cut pensions that right. were already in place, mm-hmm. you know, for people that already retired. So if they get in financial trouble and when you do the math on that, it's like it means that down the road they're gonna have like thirty to forty percent likely of their of their revenue is going straight to pensions. Mm-hmm. So that probably doesn't work mathematically. It's I suspect a, they're going to have to do something. It's an expensive benefit. It really yeah. is. So interesting fact of the week. That's just kind of the trend we see, you know, across America. Yeah. Pensions are going away the wayside. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, first topic here is uh, giving trends and maximizing your tax benefits. Yeah, this is based out of an article out of uh, CNBC, Tom Anderson. And, you know, before we really jump into the tax benefits of giving John, there are some interesting trends that have shown up in a recent study. And according to this is according to Fidelity Charitable, the nonprofit that runs its donor advised fund program. Um, they found that 71 percent of millennial women give to charity based kind of on the moment, mm-hmm. while less than half of baby boomers mm-hmm. do that. So millennials tend to give to charitable causes kind of more in the spur of the moment. And based on emotion, more than baby boomers do, according to this new study. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and millennials also are, are like you said, are leading with their heart. Um, but boomers are, are more satisfied with their giving. Um, if you look at the, the baby boomer women, 72% are very satisfied with their charitable giving, while only 55% of millennial women are. Um, of course, that could be due to the, the stage in life. I mean, if you think about baby boomer women, they're probably able to give more because their their kids are out of the house and, and college is behind them. So they have a little bit more flexibility and also the volume or the amount they're able to get is probably larger. Yeah, and they also showed that women tend to give more to charitable causes and organizations than men do, according to research out of the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Um, so when you look at just single men and single women, we see that single women are more likely hmm. to give than single men. But in general, about 75% of married couples um, make giving decisions together. So interesting finding. And Fidelity echoes many of those same conclusions from the Institute's research. But one drawback to comparing generational giving behaviors is that you don't know, you know, how younger people are going to give when they're older, you know, down the road. Um, because people do change over time. Um, so, you know, in many situations, women are driven more by the charitable giving conversation and they kind of drive the conversation. They're creating their charitable mission in their families, according to these studies. So, yeah, that's right. And, and certainly charitable giving, it's, it's a hot topic among high net worth couples. Um, Congress and the white house are, are looking at tax reform and this is a part of the discussion. And under the current law, you can deduct charitable contributions of, of money or property, made to qualified organizations if you itemize your deductions. And, you know, the rule of thumb is is about 50% of your adjusted gross income can be um, can be deducted for charitable contributions. There are some cases that it's going to be less than that. But, you know, if you, if you carry over any unused charitable donations in the following year, 
um, you, you know, you won't lose them. So you can, you can exceed that 50% threshold, but this is one of the things that's on the table with the tax reform. Yeah, it's out there. So there may be some changes coming down the pipe. Uh, they say people uh, seem to be giving more to charitables, charitables, charities recently, in part because they're worried about whether deductions will be capped in any tax reform. Um, of course, it could simply be a function of the economy as well. John, I mean, you know, lower unemployment, um, people have more money to give, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Estate planners are kind of taking a wait-and-see approach to how tax reform may change charitable giving. Meanwhile, many donors are accelerating their charitable deductions before they might potentially be limited. For example, contributions to the National Philanthropic Trust, a large donor-advised fund, rose $1.7 billion last year. It was up 72% from wow. 2015. And uh, a donor-advised fund like that just to to define that for you, it lets you take a tax deduction in the current year in which you make the contribution. Then you can direct the fund to pay out those grants over time to qualified charities Mm -hmm. that you pick with your money. Kathy and I use the Vanguard donor advised fund and, you know, it's a great tool for, for giving. Yeah, you so, can, uh, we have one at Swab and you can invest it. So it grows right. with the market, you know, it fluctuates depending on how you have it invested, but um, it can grow what you put in there. It was pretty cool. Exactly. It's a very powerful tool for giving. <clears throat> yeah. So what happens in tax reform though, um, you know, it could play a, a big role in couples giving strategies, could change strategies down the road. So it'd be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that when you look about giving and um, it, it is good to have a strategy and most donors can benefit from from being more methodical about their giving and, and concentrating your time and dollars can bring a big impact to your giving. So a couple of things that you can do to make, um, you know, charitable donation decisions include the first one is is bring your passion um, to the cause. So contributing to your, your buddy's walkathon or neighbor's bake sale is fine. Um, so have some flexibility in your giving strategy, but sustainable giving depends on your involvement. So, um, you know, you can, you can volunteer at places where you donate and find charitable missions that connect to your values. So I think what it's saying is, is, um, you know, don't give to 20, maybe give to five and kind yeah, of focus, focus your more efforts. Focus. So right. that's a personal choice, obviously, but, um, you know. It, and ones you get involved with, you understand the mission more and exactly what's going on with the money. And that kind of leads us to the next point, that is vet out the charities that you, before you give to them. I mean, many websites that are out there that do this for you. So you can check them out on Charity Navigator is one. Gold Star is another one. Another is Give.org. And they provide tools for you to gauge how effective the charities are in using your donations. Um, so if you can, even meet with the char- organization's leadership. You know, that would give you a great sense of the charity's long-term goals and how they're using the money and their philosophy. Um, but research the charities to gauge the impact. I mean, big donors do this, you know, like Bill and Melinda Gates, um, you know, with their giving. And so, so should you. I mean, everybody should check out the charities that they give to. And, you know, this is harder than only looking at the financials. I mean, you really need to kind of dig into it a little bit and and see how they use the money and, uh, you know, evaluate the success of the mission and how it shares those measurements with their donors. Mm-hmm. It's really what they're talking about here. Now, when it comes to tax benefits, there are some ways to get the most bang for your buck um, in charitable giving. Um, if you're over 70 and a half, you can use the RMD uh, from your IRAs. 
and give that directly to a charity. That's called a qualitable, a qualified charitable donation, a QCD. And you can now give up to $100,000 directly to a charity. And it avoids all the impact that you would have if you first took a distribution from your IRA, which is taxable, and then took the tax deduction um, and gave it to charity that way. Um, of course, you don't get a deduction for the gift because it's given directly from your IRA, but it's also not a taxable distribution like a normal IRA distribution would be. And as such, it avoids causing you to pay more on, more tax on your Social Security or rise it, raising your medical deduction floor, that 7.5% floor, um, and the whole host of other calculations that are tied to your adjusted gross income are avoided if you give those donations directly to a charity out of your IRA. So that's a great giving opportunity for older Americans. So that's the first one to look at. The next one is to give appreciated assets directly to a charity and avoid the capital gains tax. Now, we've talked about this a lot of times, um, and we're not just talking about stocks or mutual funds here. I mean, those are certainly the most common and the easiest to give, and you can avoid all the capital gains tax on the appreciation while taking a full deduction for the value of what you give as long as you've held it over a year um, and it's long term. But we also see people giving land, um, vehicles, or other property to charities as well. Oftentimes it's easier for a charity to sell property um, for a good price than it is for an individual. Charities usually have a pretty wide network of people um, who want to help the charity and oftentimes there's somebody in their network that can use the donated property and they're willing to buy it at a good price. So it's a good way to, to you know, yeah. give to a charity. <clears throat> Anytime lowering your tax bill um, and helping out a, a nonprofit. I mean, those are, you can't get much better than that. That's, That's a good. Right. It's a win-win. It really is. And so the third way um, to save on your taxes, if you don't itemize, you may um, consider concentrating you're giving in one year, so you don't. So you do reach a point to itemize your deduction. So, so as an example, maybe you give all your contributions in 2017 and 18 this year, and you give none next year. So you can itemize it. So you know you can do give it all in January and then again in December to spread it out um, close to the two separate years, so you don't impact the the charity, um, but still have it hit in in, in one tax year. Uh, and the itemized deduction threshold is 12700 for a married um, couple filing jointly. So 12700 is kind of the target. Uh, that way you can do that you know, every other year and take the standard deduction in between the years. Um, the same can be true of also paying your property taxes, which are typically due in, in early January. So some tax strategies, always good to you know, understand the tax rules. Obviously, uh, working with CPAs was recommended going through this process. We Definitely. obviously... Um, you know, do a lot of tax planning as well. So if you have questions on that, you can certainly reach out to us. Yep. All right. Great topic. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this this question is unfortunately um, a reality that we have to deal with sometimes, and it has to do with divorcing mm. and divorces. And um, this, this question was, I'm considering getting a divorce but have no idea what our uh, finances are. What should I do? And I think... Um, well, wow, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, we we tough. yeah we recommend um, certainly having a kind of a an asset sheet, um, a net worth sheet for every household out there that both husband and wife um, you know contribute and understand how that's generated. If you don't have that and you have no idea, you've got to start creating it. Um, and if you're in a difficult situation and and there's 
minimal communication, um, basically a lawyer is going to, is going to force that issue because the process is, is you have to list all your assets and liabilities and then you have to split them out. Right. And so a lawyer can force that issue of getting the details and the documentation. So I would certainly recommend seeking advice of a lawyer. Right. Of course, I'd seek counseling first, you know, in your marriage and try to save the marriage, obviously. Um, But uh, at the same time, yeah, you need to get a handle on the finances and, you know, having an asset inventory sheet that that both spouses, um, you know, understand, I think is is really important. And for any married couple, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, forget the divorce aspect. I mean, you need to you need to know in case something happens to your spouse where everything is and and what the situation is, what accounts are there are and, you know, how much is there and, you know, who to contact. So having that on an asset inventory sheet, I think is very, very important. So that's a, that's a great question of the week. Okay. And that leads up to our next topic here. And that is the five things never to do when you complain to customer service. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think big picture here, you know, when you talk to customer service, you got to keep your end goal in mind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that is getting a good resolution, right? I'll tell you, Tammy, Tammy, my wife, does a really good job with this, and she's kind of taught me over the years. Sometimes, you know, being being straightforward and blunt is not the best strategy, right? Not, well, not definitely <laughs> not being aggressive, you yes. know, and, and coming across like you're, you know, and somehow disrespecting them. That's right. So most people don't call a customer service hotline because because they're happy, right? It's, right it's to give right. good feedback. Right. You know, if you picked up the phone and dialed a one eight hundred number recently, chances are you've had an issue. You've had something to complain about. But you know, bringing a bad attitude into the call isn't likely to get you the results that you want. And this is according to a study that was done uh, at the University of British Columbia. So this is based on data and stats. Um, the angrier or more aggressive you get during a customer service call, the greater the chance you'll receive poor service in return. And that's according to the paper. Um, you know, that's not exactly surprising. Most of us would predict rudeness begets rudeness, right? So your approach on these calls, um, you got to go into it with a different mindset. The end goal, I think is a great way to look at it. Yeah, that's exactly right. But the researchers, they wanted to know exactly what customers were doing to antagonize customer service reps. And to find out, they used transcripts and computerized text analysis to review over 100,000 words that were spoken in more than 400 calls to a Canadian customer service center. And the goal was to identify how the workers responded to what customers said during conversations. And they found some very interesting results here at how they reacted when they analyze these calls. Yeah, the, the lead author of this um, said that we know that uh, customer service quality suffers when customers are rude or aggressive to employees. Um, but our research is one of the first to pinpoint the specific words service employees hear from customers that can really undermine the quality of customer service. So specifically, you know, there's a couple of uh, customer moves that triggered a negative response from the workers, um, especially when they occurred like in combination, a couple of different ways of doing that. So, you know, do these things the next time you complain to customer service and you're going to hurt your chances. So we would recommend not to do them, right? For the first sure. one here that does not work out well is use aggressive language. And the more aggressive your language when talking to um, to customer service, the less likely your problem will be resolved satisfactory, satisfactorily. So most people probably know that, but apparently it doesn't stop people from getting sassy with innocent call center workers. I mean, roughly three-quarters of the call researchers studied contained aggressive language, 
words such as angry, complain, hassle, nightmare, um, those kind of trigger words prove not to be good in that process. Right. So, so no matter how frustrated you are, you tend to receive better results if you use positive language. When people use positive words such as great and fine, um, the customer service response improved. Yeah, and I guess I would distinguish that aggressive language from being direct and firm mm-hmm. with what you, sure. the resolution you're sure. looking for. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you do it in a respectful way. Sure, I think the respect you know, is a key. It really is. Yeah, I mean, and certainly number two here, never do this, and that is attack them personally. That will never further your cause. <laughs> never, ever will that help your, your case. Yeah, I mean, the customer service rep isn't to blame for the faulty product you received. And, you know, you both know it. I mean, taking it out, taking out your frustration on them personally won't help you get the complaint resolved faster or in a better, better way. The researchers found that when the caller used aggressive language along with second person pronouns such as you and your customer service, the customer service got marketably worse. Mm-hmm. So it didn't help at all. Yeah, not surprising. And also, uh, you know, using phrases like your your product is garbage um, or this product is garbage. I mean, that's just going to, um, you know, if, when you when you personalize it, it it's not going to, it doesn't help. So exactly. don't make it, the, don't make it their issue. Make it a, a company issue, a product issue, but it's not the customer service. Like you said, it's not their fault. So that's number two. And number three here on the list is, is don't interrupt. I mean, you, you know, your, your mother told you it was rude to interrupt people, and she was right. I mean, cutting these folks off um, violates normal conversational rules, and it makes them less likely to, for them to want to help you. So the majority of calls analyzed, um, you know, in this study contain customer interruptions. So a lot of people wow. are – a lot of people are using aggressive language. They're attacking them personally, and they're also interrupting them. Um, so even if you're pressed for time and you want to get your issue resolved as quickly as possible, hear out the customer service rep. They may be trying to explain something to you, and I think it does come back to, to respect. Exactly. Listen to what they're saying and not interrupting them. Yeah, exactly. And the fourth one here on the list, um, it's hard <clears throat> to me imagine somebody would do this, but it's to threaten them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean yeah. – you know, I'm going to sue you guys. Um, threatening to call a lawyer might feel good when you say it, but the chances are is not going to endear you to the customer service rep on the other end of the line. You know, although the study didn't look at how the call centers specifically respond to threats as opposed to just aggressive language, those manning the phones say it's not an effective way to get what you want. Customer service reps, you know, venting their frustration um, you know, on their forum, uh, they make it clear that threats to get attorneys involved didn't make them any more likely to help you. Bringing up lawyers might get your referral to the company's legal legal department, but it won't get your problem solved any faster. You know, the same goes with threatening to call the Better Business Bureau or go to the media. You know, worse are customers who become extremely abusive or resort to threats of physical violence, heaven forbid. Yeah, I mean, if you can't communicate like a sane adult, you know, they might just drop your call. Um, (laughs) And, you know, keep in mind that companies are likely keeping track of calls and, you know, they might have noted your bad behavior and, you know, and where it came from Mm -hmm. and might not take your call in the future somehow. So. You definitely, you don't want to use these tactics. I mean, it's yeah. it's going to hurt you. Yep. And it's interesting that most of these tactics are being used when they listen to the calls. Yes. Right. And I bet you they are tracking them. 
I, I, I guarantee are. you sure. they are, they are, they're definitely tracking and you know there may be uh, an aggregator out there that's tracking all people i, I don't know it's Probably it's um like somehow block your number or yeah. flag your number and right. just you know leave it in the loop forever or something right that's right <laughs> so the last one here on the list is is being unprepared so you know you you know the customer service rep is going to ask you for your account number when you call so make sure you have that on hand um before you pick up the phone a simple step of preparation makes life easier for you and also the person who's trying to help you, you know, fix your problem. So once you're on the phone, briefly explain your problem um, and what you want the company to do about it. And uh, then give the customer service rep time to respond. Let them do their job. That's what they're trained to do. During the conversation, take note of the customer service's name. Um, also write down any kind of tracking or case numbers. Um, and you, because you obviously may need that information in the future. So, um, the takeaway from this, Steve is, is, is being polite does matter, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You gotta, you gotta think through that. The, uh, you know, the power of politeness, um, which, you know, mostly involves treating customer service reps with just basic respect. It sounds simple. Um, but following them can be a challenge for callers who are extremely frustrated by the time someone picks up their call. And I think the other to me, as I think about this this issue, is um, it's a not, it's kind of anonymous. You think about the things that people do in cars, right? They normally wouldn't do um, because yeah. it's an anonymous type thing. It's they, the phone is the same way, and so there people are probably doing things they normally wouldn't do. It's a little out, out of character. character. Yep. They just get angry. They've been on the phone for thirty minutes or an hour in most cases, and. Yeah, I mean, when they surveyed people about their experiences with customer service, more than 60% said they were highly annoyed by complicated phone menu systems, long hold times, poorly functioning voice recognition systems, hard to find, you know, contact numbers. So by the time they got a real person, their patience was wearing thin. But my advice would be you have to keep your end goal in mind, and that is getting a successful resolution. You know, um, so you can always attract more bees with honey than you can vinegar. Mm -hmm. I think of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite children's books, you know, the tawny scrawny lion, where he just kept telling himself three fat, four, five fat sisters and four fat brothers. He keeps the the end goal in mind. (laughs) It just kind of stuck with me. But I mean, you know, there are certainly times when you need to be firm and direct um, about the resolution you're looking for. But never rude, never disrespectful, never attack somebody personally. That will never help your cause. That's right. So, I mean, you know, just just um, be polite. The power of politeness. Um, you know, you are being recorded as you go through this process. And power of politeness is going to get your problem resolved much, much quicker. That's an interesting study. I'm glad we uh, we covered that because... I think we all have to to deal with eight hundred numbers. Yes, um, I feel like one of the one of the the advantages of a local firm like us is you know we answer the phone and and we try to resolve it very very quickly. So right, um, but there's some things you don't have a choice on. You know, uh, phone companies and, and internet companies you have to dial into a, a massive call center. Yeah, and when you do get a person, I mean, you you got to do everything you can to get the resolution you're working for and and and. Coming with a bad attitude is not going to help you solve your that's problems. Right. So I think that's a great, great topic. Okay, and that leads up to our final thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, I heard a um, stat, and it was actually on um, Clark Howard. Um, gave a pretty good. It was actually he had a guest, um, a guest on his. Uh, it was on his on his webpage, 
So it, didn't, it wasn't actually Clark, but um, the average student loan debt is about 37000 So people graduating okay. today, that's the average right. student loan debt. So his rule or his recommendation on rule of thumb or the person that was on his show um, was basically don't take out more loans than the expected first year salary. Okay. And I thought that was interesting. So if you, that's if you, pretty good. first of all, you have to do some research to know what the salary is going to be. Right. To kind of get an idea. But, you know, if you're going to come out making $20,000, in your field, don't go and get $80,000 worth of debt. It's yeah, not going to work. I like that. I like that rule of thumb. I really do. And I would add to it and I would say this, okay, if you do that, then, you know, at the most you take out a loan, student loans that equal your first year salary, <clears throat> then plan to live off of two thirds of your salary when you get out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take that third, pay your taxes and pay your student loan off in four years. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do that, you could pay it off in four years yeah. after taxes and you'd be done with it. Yeah, that's right. I think any good, any student loan, you need to have a plan for knocking it out in four years, being done with that and moving on with life. Yeah, that's right. You got to start paying yourself. Exactly. So I think it's a good rule of thumb. I would add that second part to yeah, it. I like that. Two thirds of your salary. So, all right. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Do check us out on our website, investrya.com. And, uh, Hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Um, Give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 